On the show this week, the federal government introduces a carbon tax against four provinces Ottawa says have failed to produce their own plans to reduce emissions. A federal plan already under fire as the business community says it will hurt Canadian competitiveness. We'll put this to the finance minister. Then a rare show of unity in the House of Commons as MPs vote in favour of a national strategy to deal with returning ISIS fighters. But will the government follow through? And a conversation with New Zealand's trade minister about the WTO getting rid of supply management and their 10-year free trade deal with China. I'm Mercedes Stevenson and this is the West Block Podcast. The federal government introduced its long-awaited price on carbon last week against four provinces, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, all of whom have refused to get on board with Ottawa's plan. In those provinces, consumers will pay more for fuel, then claim a credit on their federal income tax. The opposition calls the plan a backdoor tax grab. Earlier, I sat down with Finance Minister Bill Morneau to talk about the carbon tax and whether Canada is prepared for a looming recession. Minister Morneau, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. This week you announced the carbon tax. It's been controversial. Some of the provinces not very happy about it. Some people are saying this is just a way to increase revenue for the government, that it's a tax grab. Is this about revenue or is it about the environment? Maybe I can break down that question. So there's a few questions there. First of all, it's about putting a price on pollution because we want to make sure that what we don't want, pollution, is priced so that people actually don't want to pollute anymore. Secondly, we've said we're going to give all the revenue back to the provinces. So 100 cents on the dollar, which means there's no federal revenue in this at all. In fact, 90% of the revenue will go back to citizens. So they'll actually get more money, then prices will go up. And then the other 10% will go to sectors of the economy that will have the ability to adapt. Small businesses, schools, universities, hospitals. So. You know, what we're trying to do is we're, we're pricing what we don't want and that's going to reduce it and we're giving people what they do want, which is more money. Now, we've talked to the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. They say that small businesses are going to shoulder an unfair burden on this and that it's affecting their competitiveness. Is that something you're concerned about? You know, we're always concerned that small business is successful in Canada. That's very important for our economy. What we've been doing for the last few years is, of course, addressing that. The small business taxes have gone down. Uh, we've obviously seen a reduction in employment insurance charges. But in this case, what we're seeing is that we're actually going to push back a significant amount of money to small businesses. So when you look at the amount of money going back to small businesses in those four provinces, it's about $1.4 billion over five years. And that'll be money that they can use to adapt, to become more efficient, so that their footprint on the environment is lessened. And that I know that small businesses want to be part of the goal of having less pollution. We all want to make sure we're part of the environmental opportunity to improve our situation. So we're going to find a way to do that. And the business community has been raising the issue with you of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. They're concerned that Canada is not as competitive as the United States. And I was looking up the numbers just before we sat down to chat. The U.S. has a 4.2% GDP growth rate compared to Canada's 2.9%. Their unemployment is lower at 3.7% than ours at 5.9%. What are you considering to increase competitiveness and could it include significant corporate tax cuts? First of all, let me just address the how the economy is doing. So our economy is doing very well. We're in a situation where our growth has been strong, our unemployment rates 
while different than the United States, they're at f near or at 40-year lows. So we're, we're in a strong position economically, and, and that's the framework that we start with. Of course, what the United States has done is they've significantly increased their deficit at you know, some significant long-term risk to their fiscal health. We're going to take a look at, at how we can ensure businesses in Canada stay competitive, which, which means they are competitive now, but we know that there's always more we can do. What I've heard from businesses is a few things as I've been out listening to them. We've, we've heard that they really are worried about trade. Of course, the US MCA deal, the deal with Mexico and the United States, has really lessened that concern. They've been concerned in the oil and gas sector in particular about access to international markets. So our decision to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the expansion, you know, that relieved that concern. We have more work to do to make sure we get that done right. And they're concerned to make sure that they can invest in a competitive basis, especially for businesses that have opportunities to invest in Canada and the United States. So we're looking at the tax changes that the Americans have made in order to make sure that for those businesses with that choice, that they choose Canada, that they want to invest here and create jobs here. And I'm pretty confident we'll, we'll find a way to do that. Well, and when we look at foreign direct investment, it's down. It's at a 10-year low, and a lot of that has to do with natural resources and what's happened with oil out in Alberta. But does it concern you that for foreign investors at this point, the U.S. economy is going great guns, and the Canadian economy is not quite keeping up and, and not offering the same tax breaks? Well, let me just challenge the frame there a little bit. Just in the last few weeks, you've seen you know, LNG Canada make the largest single private sector investment in this country's history, a $40 billion investment. What we've seen over the last year and a half is that total investment, total business investment in our country is actually going up. So when you refer to investment challenges, I think to a great extent what you're really referring to is the challenge that's happened in the oil and gas sector with the decline in oil prices, which did reduce investment in that sector and did so significantly. But really, we've been climbing out of that for the last year and a half. There's more to do. We want to make sure that investment continues in Canada. And, and that's, that's exactly why I've been out listening to businesses. And that's exactly why I've said that what we want to do in the fall economic statement is address that business anxiety in a way that's consistent with our goal of, of being prudent and managing our budget, but addressing the concern that we have investment for long-term jobs. How do you address that concern? Well, you're gonna to have to wait till November 21st if you want all the details. When I take a look at the foreign direct investment, you mentioned oil and gas. Of course, we think about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, it's now the federal government's. Mm. Uh, I know that you have made the decisions in terms of how long the consultations will take that you're required to do. Are you willing to commit to a date for when we can expect to see the pipeline start going through? What is more important for me to commit to is how we're going to deal with what the federal court told us. We, we want to make sure that we address the issues in a way that, that actually makes sure that this pipeline expansion gets delivered. And so that means not setting a, a fixed date because we need to have at least the ability to ensure that we engage constructively. So first, we've said we want to make sure we go through the National Energy Board process to ensure that we're dealing with the, the issues around the, the West Coast to make sure that we've, we've heard about the species at risk challenges. We think we've already addressed those with our Oceans Protections Plan, but you know we want to listen to make sure. And then once that's done, and we've, we've got it in 22 weeks, there'll still be some more consultation with Indigenous peoples to make sure we've, we've heard and constructively engaged to, to get to what we hope is a, a, a positive result. That's what we're aiming for. 
I'm not going to give an exact date because the process needs to an to approximate to date ballpark. Well, we've we've said clearly that we have to do this the right way, and doing it the right way means engaging constructively. And so, for that reason, we're not going to put a fixed date on it. But we have been clear as well that we think that this project has some real potential to uh, enable our overall economy to do well and enable job creation in Alberta and BC across the country. Well, so speaking of Alberta, they've asked about these reviews that are happening on natural resource product projects. Pardon me. Uh, they're concerned that they don't have information about that yes, uh, yet. When I was out west, um, I heard from people who said, look, we don't think we're going to be able to build natural resource projects. We are not getting any information. Are you concerned about how that affects the economy? We're trying to be very transparent about how we go about this process to get the project done the right way. Uh, so we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to communicate with people how we do that. And in particular, in this case, we're going to constructively engage with the Indigenous peoples who've been uh, presenting issues so that we can listen to, consider the issues, and, and, and get this done in the right way. Where are we at on steel and aluminum tariffs? Well, where we're at is an unfortunate place. We obviously are unhappy that we have uh, this uh, U.S. action against us. We think it's completely inappropriate. We're a U.S. ally. The use of, of Section 232 in order to make an excuse for steel and aluminum tariffs we think is just flat out uh, inappropriate. So where are we at? We're, we're taking measures in a few directions. First and foremost, obviously we are negotiating with the Americans in order to try to get past this. But while we do that, and that requires some you know, ongoing discussions, we're making sure that we manage the stability of the market. So we've, we've ensured that there are safeguards put in place. We've taken a look at how we can have remission orders for, for Canadian purchasers of steel that need them. Uh, that's allowed us to keep the market stable during this period of, of challenge for both the, the producers and the users of steel. Is there any end in sight for the deficit? I'm, I'm, oh, for the deficit. Uh, well, <laughs> I was going to say I'm always cautiously optimistic about getting through the steel and aluminum tariffs, and uh, I'm always going to be fiscally prudent when it comes to managing our overall finances. What you've seen us do is make investments. What you've seen us do is, is uh, work together with Canadians to create growth. What you've also seen is a decline in the amount of debt as a function of our overall economy over time. And we're going to continue to maintain that prudent approach to, to managing our economy and, and managing the, the Canadian federal government's uh, investments. So Do you that's think we're important. in a position to handle a recession, which the big banks are predicting? First, I would say that uh, our economy, again, is doing well. You always, though, want to make sure that you're your balance sheet is resilient enough to deal with challenges. Uh, I guess the way to think about that is where does Canada stand in comparison with other countries? If you look at the G7 countries and you look at the amount of debt any of those G7 countries have as a function of their GDP, we are far and away the lowest among the G7 countries. In fact, we're less than half of the average debt as a function of our GDP. So. That's sort of not different than when you look at a company and say, you know, how much debt are they carrying? Well, the Canadian government is carrying the lowest amount of debt to those comparable economies. So that puts us in a position where uh, should we find ourselves, for whatever reason, to need to demonstrate that resilience, we'll have the capacity. I have one last question I want to ask you, Mr. Morrow. I'm going to ask you to flip to the very last page here where there's a blue marker. This is the public accounts that were released last Friday. Okay. One right there. 
2017-2018, settlement subject to confidentiality agreement. This is um, basically cases that have been brought against the Crown. Uh, says six names, almost $11.8 million. Million? Million. Hmm. Is that Omar Khadr's payout? Uh, well, as you probably know, it's a fairly large annual financial report representing uh, over $300 billion. So I don't know each uh, $10 million or $11 million or $12 million line item, so I really have no idea. But what I can tell you is that we are working hard to make sure that our accounts are transparent, that people have a good understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And you know that's something that we'll continue to do because we want to make sure that Canadians have confidence in our approach to managing the economy. Okay. Minister Morneau, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. It hardly ever happens in the House of Commons, a partisan place. But last week, in a rare show of unity, the government voted to support the Conservative motion to create a national strategy to deal with returning ISIS fighters. But the opposition says the government needs to do more than just endorse their motion with words. In the past, where they support a motion that Conservatives have put forward, and then they do absolutely nothing to take action afterwards. The Prime Minister has had years to deal with this issue, and the fact is that these individuals who have gone and fought with ISIS are coming back and are not facing justice. He has introduced legislation that actually ties the hands of our security officials, and shockingly, he's reduced the penalties for those who are facing terrorist-related charges. When will the Prime Minister finally take real action to protect our communities? Joining me now is Karen McCrimmon, the Parliamentary Secretary for Public Safety. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Mercedes. So an unusual moment in the House this week when you agreed with the opposition motion. Why did you agree with it? Why did the government vote in favor of this? I think uh, it, what it comes down to is that we want to make sure that Canadians have confidence in their security in their public safety measures. And we agree that uh, Daesh and uh, the heinous acts that they committed uh, in Syria and Iraq really needs to be acknowledged, and we need to condemn it very, very strongly. And what is the government going to do, though, beyond condemning it? In terms of actual action, what does this national strategy look like? Okay. Uh, I have Sometimes I have a hard time when I sit in the House and I, we have these kind of challenges, because I know that the previous government actually cut a billion dollars from our national security agencies. But you have and, had three years now. And we put 700 million of it back plus. So we've, that's in the RCMP alone, that we've increased spending by $700 million. And I think what we believe needs to happen is that you need a very disciplined, very deliberate, very conscious approach to dealing with these kind of challenges. And you need to do it with your partners. And but so, what does that look like in terms of actual action? Actual actions. Well, first of all, we are prosecuting in court. So there have been four people charged, two have been convicted, two are underway. And that's more than the previous government had done. Also, when it, in terms of, we have other tools at our, at our uh, avail that we can, you know, challenge people, we can uh, trace them, we can survey them, we can monitor them, and I think there's a lot of that going on 
while you gather the evidence you need in order to lay a charge. Now, police have said that they have a hard time charging people because typically, if you're a police officer, you go gather <clears throat> the evidence. You can't do that in Syria, although in some cases, these people have produced videos of themselves advocating for the deaths of Canadians. Are you looking at changing the laws to make it easier for police to charge? I, I think that dilemma of how do you take intelligence information and turn it into evidence that would stand in court, that's... Uh, that's a dilemma that we're all dealing with. And you, you can understand it, because if you get information in uh, Syria that someone is working, a Canadian is working with Daesh, um, and you're getting that from a certain source, chances are you're not going to be able to get that source to actually testify in court. So you've got to find other measures of, of evidence. And there are uh, some people will say one thing up front, and then they'll recant it later on. So we've seen that happen as well. Mm -hmm. So we need to find the firm evidence, and, and that's exactly what we're working on. Why bring these people back to Canada at all? The Brits just strip them of citizenship and say, sorry, you can stay there. The French actually send in special forces hit squads to kill their own citizens. And we see global affairs reaching out and saying, would you like to come to Canada? And Canadians are wondering, why on earth would you do that? Well, there are uh, global affairs has their own work to do in, in difficult parts of the world, and I think uh, I think we can probably expect people to reach out and say, "Is this possibility there?" Uh, but uh, let's make it quite clear: those people left the safety of Canadian democracy willingly, and they've gone to fight with really a heinous organization on the other side of the world. There has to be consequences for that, and there will be. So. Why let them come home, though? Why not just leave them there? Well, I think the thing... We don't believe in two-tier citizenship. And if someone's a Canadian citizen, we're responsible for them, whether we like it or not. Which means these people, they need to be held accountable for their crimes. So we will take them home and they will be prosecuted and uh, in a court of law and, and treated accordingly. Um, I don't think... Uh, when there's Canadians who have abroad, who have broken the law, it's our responsibility to deal with it. We can't just hand that off to some other nation to deal with. I mean, you pointed out the four prosecutions, but there's believed to be a, a much, much larger number of returning fighters who are in Canada and another surge potentially coming home. The RCMP have said they don't have the resources to monitor all these people. Are you considering spending more money on public safety to allow them to put more tracking devices on people to surveil them so you actually know where these people are when they come home if they're not in jail, which at this point they're not? I think there's exactly why we added annually $700 million to the RCMP budget. But so would you add more on top increase. of that? Because well, there's been a tremendous stress at the Lacoal border crossing and other areas for the RCMP. Yeah, and, and there's more than one way of doing things. We're never going to talk about all of the tools that are at our disposal because, um, you know, you could jeopardize things. You could jeopardize uh, a court proceeding or a conviction. You could jeopardize your source. You could jeopardize the men and women who actually go out there and collect that evidence. But there are more ways of doing this than, than might meet the eye. Okay. And I think the RCMP have done a really good job of collaborating with all our... Yeah, all the other nations who will have the same challenge. We have to wrap it up there, unfortunately, because we're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure, Mercedes.
increasing trade between Canada and China is a focus on both sides of the Pacific, but it's not without its challenges. New Zealand, however, may provide some insight into how to get trade with China right. Last week, I sat down with New Zealand's Trade Minister, David Parker, to talk about trade with China and reforming the WTO. Here's that conversation. Welcome to Canada and thank you so much for joining us today, Minister Parker. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Hey, you've been sitting down with other countries talking about how to reform the World Trade Organization. It's something Donald Trump says he has no use for. What did you discuss at this meeting about how countries like Canada and New Zealand can navigate and try to bring meaningful change to the WTO? You know, 13 countries in the room that Canada brought together today represent uh, GDP twice that of the United States. Uh, we were there trying to find solutions to address the legitimate concerns of the USA, things like problems in the appellate body, the fact that the WTO doesn't seem to be able to update its rules to meet current challenges. Uh, and there was an acknowledgement in the room that if we can't achieve that as an international community, then the WTO will wither. Is it hard to figure out what changes to make, though, if you don't have the two biggest players there, and that's China and the United States? Well, you know, you, you, actually sometimes these negotiations can be bigger than Ben-Hur. Uh, there are other negotiations, for example, there's one going at the moment that involves the EU, Japan and USA in, in respect of what are called notifications, transparency around subsidies by different countries. Uh, so there's more than one thing going on at the same time, uh, but this is a really worthy effort on the part of Canada to bring together like-minded countries to see if we can make a difference. How important is it to be able to maintain an institution like the WTO in this uncertain international environment? The smaller the country, the more important it is. But even larger countries like G20 countries like Canada, uh, it's obvious from their comments that they believe in the system as well. They think that the rule of law is important, including in trade, and that's effectively what the WTO gives us. It's effectively the rule of law relating to trade that can be enforced internationally. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about China all around the world with Donald Trump's potential trade war, which it appears he's implementing. Certainly here in Canada, we've been talking about it because we just signed the USMCA deal that has restrictions potentially on Canada's ability to sign a trade deal with China. I bring this up because in New Zealand, I was fascinated to learn that China is your biggest trading partner and that you've had 10 years this month of free trade with China. How has that worked out for you? Very well. Uh, we've got a trade uh, balance with uh, China that's a slight surplus for New Zealand. It is our largest uh, trading partner. It, it, it sort of flips between China and, and Australia being our largest uh, trading partner, but they're both very, very important. Uh, to put it in, in context, it's about twice as much as our trade uh, with the United States. Um, so, you know, we, we've got a good trading relationship with the United States, uh, with Europe, uh, with Australia and China as well. One of the concerns that's been raised around China is that they pour cheap goods into the market, that it can depress wages, it can displace jobs. Have you had that experience with your free trade with China? Uh, not really, no. Uh, I think the technological disruption that's been caused by the digitalization and automation of many jobs would have been of more effect uh, than that. There have been uh, outsourcing of jobs to lower labor cost uh, countries around the world, including China. You know, we don't really have a um, a textile industry in New Zealand now, but I think that would have happened irrespective of whether they had a free trade agreement with, uh, with China. And we're careful in our conversations with New Zealanders to say, look, you, know, you can't blame other countries for the technology revolution that's sweeping the world either. Just got to make sure that the government supports are in there for people to retrain, for example, if they lose their job and to push against some of the adverse effects of globalisation like 
multinational tax avoidance and the like. What would your advice be to the Canadian government if they're considering a free trade deal with China? Oh, well, I, I would say that's a, that's a matter for them, uh, but if they want uh, to look for what you would have as to good rules in an agreement that protect both sides of that transaction, they could look at the terms of the New Zealand agreement and indeed the, uh, the terms that are in the uh, CPTPP agreement that China's in the, uh, Canada's in the middle of signing up to and which we've all also ratified because they've got very good provisions in there too. We actually uh, just ratified that. So yeah. uh, both of our countries have done that now. That's right. One of the things that that agreement brought up, and so did USMCA, is the dairy industry. Mm. New Zealand used to have a system that was somewhat similar to Canada mm. in terms of supply management, quotas. You got rid of that system. We did. Uh, this is a sacred cow, so to speak, in Canada. What has the experience been for New Zealanders dealing with the dairy industry without those yeah. kinds of supports? Uh, our industry has become um, more efficient and larger. So uh, rather than being adverse to their interests, it's, it's turned out the opposite way. There were fears, of course, at the time, um, but it's worked out very well. So why do you think it is that some countries like Canada are, are so protectionist with it? They're so afraid to open that up. Uh, well. You, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to uh, opine as to why Canada acts as it does in respect of its, uh, its industries. Uh, these are obviously sensitivities for the Canadian government and you probably should ask them. How does New Zealand deal with Donald Trump? Uh, respectfully. Uh, we, we, we have respectful relationships uh, with, uh, with every country in the world. You know, we're, we're a minnow in the world. Uh, uh, we haven't got the power to push anyone around. I've just been to Washington. Uh, we were treated very politely uh, and uh, uh, we wanted to learn more about some of the concerns that the United States has, for example, about how the WTO appellate body works. And we actually share their concerns. We agree that those... And what, what are some of those concerns? Uh, well, for example, we were joint uh, plaintiff with the United States in a case against another company and country in respect of illegal practices relating to beef. Uh, the appellate body took um, nine months uh, when it should have taken three months to deliver a decision. And their, their, their eventual decision, which was in our favour, was six months late. And you never get a remedy for that six months that you've lost. Well, the rules say it's meant to be done within 90 days. So we're with the US, which says that the appellate body should stick, stick to it and uh, apply the rules. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we came here because we want to work with other like-minded countries like uh, Canada and the other countries in the room to try and bring forward practical solutions quickly to solve these problems that have been complained about long before the Trump administration but have yet to be fixed within the WTO. The last question I want to ask you is immigration, which I know is not really your file, but it's something that Canada's dealing with. We've had thousands of people coming across the U.S. border, claiming asylum in Canada. You're right next to Australia, which has had some very strict immigration policies. You've talked to them about possibly taking uh, some of the people who are on the Pacific Islands, who are refugees. How do you think, in, in this modern world where it seems like borders are disappearing, countries can deal with the challenges of people becoming more and more mobile and hoping to move somewhere where they can have a better life, but also the challenges that come with that? Well, you're right, I'm not the immigration spokesperson. Suffice it to say, these are vexed issues for the world, and um, uh, they're very, very difficult issues that if you get wrong, uh, uh, cause um, uh, uh, unusual outcomes within countries, as has been seen in parts of Europe. So uh, they're issues that we take seriously. 
um, uh, we, we don't have to grapple with some of the issues that other countries have to, because it's a lot of sea between us and anywhere. Um, uh, in respect of immigration policy more broadly, we're quite an open country. Uh, we're similar to Canada in that regard. We have high rates of immigration, uh, and uh, we've found that it has helped aid in the prosperity of our country. But it's not without controversy in our own country as well, particularly in respect of um, uh, uh, immigration that uh, impacts upon the bottom end of the labour market. One last question. I'm very curious to know this because we've talked about populism rising in many countries around the world. Have you seen populism at all becoming a factor in New Zealand? Um, well, not in the same way that it's uh, bedeviling a lot of other countries. We're worried uh, about maintaining our liberal, open democracy and the public institutions that we rely upon and the level of taxation that's required to support them. So we try to have a conversation about the underlying issues that give rise to insecurity uh, in the middle classes, which is perhaps what's driving popularity. I would say one other thing, and I think that is, and this is a personal view that I've expressed with to a lot of other ministers around the world, we've got to get under control the abuses of social media, which is not just uh, fake news or uh, the um, inappropriate use of social media to try, uh, try and influence election outcomes. It's actually the pushing out of extreme opinion and uh, bile that um, undermines public confidence in democratic institutions. And I think if I had one issue that I could fix in New Zealand with that I think we share with the rest of the world is the extremes that uh, social media currently drive but take no responsibility for. Very interesting. Minister Parker, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.